0: In this episode of the Upwards podcast, we'll be listening to a conversation between Melissa Shackelford, Director of Program Curation at Upper House, and Peter Tan, the Chief Design Officer at Strang, Inc., an award-winning architecture, engineering, interior design, and planning firm here in Madison. Coming up, Melissa and Peter discuss the spiritual significance of space, how architects are responding to COVID, and how buildings and the missions of the organizations inhabiting them reinforce each other, right after the intro music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church.
0: I'm here with Melissa today to introduce our guest. Peter Tan. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Dan. So tell us a bit about Peter.
1: Yeah, it was such an honor to have a conversation with Peter. He has been an architect for over 30 years, and is currently the executive vice president and chief design officer at Strang, where he's worked since 1993. In that role, he's responsible for String's design vision and creative direction. And I found him incredibly client-focused, servant-oriented, and he really sees design in terms of story, sustainability, and stewardship.
0: So the intersection of Christian faith and architecture might be on our radar if we're thinking about cathedrals or churches in particular, but maybe less so with modern or or not specifically religious architecture buildings. So what's the origin story of how you got interested in talking to Peter for the podcast?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm really aesthetically motivated, and I am fascinated by the way that physical structures and frameworks influence my emotional, relational, and even spiritual experience of a particular place. So I think it as human beings, we probably all have places that move us or speak to us internally in a particular way. And I wanted to better understand how that happens. So that was the first thing that drew me to Peter. And secondly i just really admire him as a leader in our city and as a person of faith and the times that i've been in conversation with him here at upper house his words always inspire a more integrated and authentic life and i really wanted to share that with others
0: yeah and i think that really comes through in the conversation as well so after talking with peter what's the sort of top level insight or takeaway for us on how we should be thinking about the intersection of faith and architecture
1: Well, Peter is going to say it much better than I can, but listen for his comments about how architecture shapes both the interior life and the exterior life of our cities, but then how that metaphor really translates to our personal lives. So. There are so many metaphors in this conversation for really how to architect ourselves, architect our faith, how we relate to one another, and it's all interwoven into um, his daily life and, and what he does um, to build the physical structures. But I think that there's a there's lot we can learn to build uh, the spiritual life within us as well.
0: Yeah, and we were talking just before this about how we just appreciate the architect's perspective on a lot of topics that we talk about here at Upper, at Upper House, uh, but there's something unique about thinking about place and about building and about those structures um, that adds to the conversation in a really great way.
1: Yeah, I think everyone's in for a treat today.
0: Great. Well, thanks for your insights, Melissa. Without further ado, here's an upwards conversation with Peter Tan.
1: I want to start out by getting to hear a little bit of your story and really getting to what drew you to the field of architecture. Tell us a little bit about that arc and and, and why architecture for you?
2: Well, it all started with Legos. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's interesting, I think back to my childhood, right? When I was playing with Legos, I was most passionate about creating an entire built environment. Most of my creations were like buildings and infrastructure and uh. We also had this Lego train set. Now this was like the 60s, but uh, it was it was really cool. I was like, we were one of the few people who had a Lego train set. And one day I decided to create a suspension bridge. And as you know, with a suspension bridge, you need to anchor the ends of this bridge. So I had to get permission from my parents to hammer four nails into the floor of my bedroom. <laughs> So, and I did that. They gave me the permission. I mean, that was actually pretty amazing. I looked back and I was like, I'm so grateful to my parents for the cable support system. I took apart an old tennis racket. I hope I got permission to do that. I did that. And it was like this cool thing. It was like this kind of highlight of my childhood. I also love to draw. I'm a visual spatial person. Uh, that's just kind of how I see the world. And I was thinking, two things I love to do are dance and kayaking.
1: Hmm.
2: And they both involve rhythm and movement through space. And so does architecture. And so talk about dance. I love to dance. And architecture and dance are both about rhythm, space, movement through space. And while dance is an intuitive response to music, architecture invokes intuitive responses in our bodies as we experience its rhythm and space. Talk a about, bit about kayaking. To me, the Greenland kayak, the Inuit Greenland kayak is an elegant, form that's entirely shaped by function. I love the rhythm and sculpture of the frame. Vernacular design and craftsmanship transform that driftwood and seal skin into something fully functional at the same time, like totally transcendent. Wow. And I love kayaking into like sea caves. If you've kayaked in uh, Lake Superior, there are these waterfalls that are splashing right into the lake they create this wall of translucency and sound as we move through this rich spatial experience of scale, texture, color, light and dark, in and out, closeness, expansiveness. So for me architecture is like the perfect combination of the arts and the sciences.
1: Wow, that's that's a great description. Did maybe in your journey or in your professional career now, I imagine there are misconceptions about what architecture is, what it can do. Talk a little bit about what are a couple of those misconceptions that people have about the field of architecture and and how might you want to correct those today?
2: (laughs) Yeah, sure. One, the architect as prima donna. And I think this image is created like by Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, I mean, like the most famous Wisconsin architect, right? Yeah. You know, the the guy with the big black cloak, you know, just showing up on site and, you know, that kind of thing. But instead, we approach our work with the idea of what we call design synchronicity, where we celebrate the creative contributions of a diverse interdisciplinary team. So as the chief design officer at Strength, this is my job. My job is the overall design vision and direction of the firm, right? So I strive to create a culture that underscores that every member of our team of architects, engineers, and interior designers is a designer in their own right. This is really important, really important. Very different paradigm from like the one big prima donna. It's a teamwork kind of thing. No one has the monopoly of good ideas. Everyone brings their respective talents and ideas. A few years ago, we did a pachakacha on design excellence in the office And it was like one of the most fun things. It was great. You know, as you know, Pachakacha is like 20 slides, 20 seconds a slide, right? And we had everyone in the firm do that and talk about what it meant, what design excellence meant for them. So one of my most memorable ones was the presentation from our director of plumbing. He's an engineer. And he was like waxing eloquent about piping design and what design excellence meant to him and this connection. And oh, it's really cool. He really got into it. Now, This guy is generally typically pretty reserved, really quiet guy. But when he started talking about plumbing, I mean, he was just like in his element. And that was just so fun to watch. Diversity, equity, inclusion is a very important part of our culture. Because a more diverse organization and community is more innovative, more creative, and actually ultimately more successful and prosperous. It's kind of a win-win. It's the right thing to do. You end up being more successful as a result of it anyway. So two... Architect as egotistical artist, <laughs> unlike Howard Rock in Anne Rand's Fountainhead, we seek to create client-focused architecture, okay, being good listeners and having the heart of a servant. Our goal is clients who are co-creators, raving fans who feel that we get them, that we have their best interests in mind. That heart of a servant is really important, and, and that's totally con- consistent with what Jesus calls us to be. So it's actually really cool. Just, it just works. Three, architects make it pretty, engineers make it work. Okay, true design excellence extends way beyond simply making a beautiful building. We take a much more holistic approach to design and striving to create architecture that stands the test of time, functions well, and is, is aesthetically delightful.
1: That's great. I, I love setting those out there. there. There's so many principles that you, you just shared just about team culture and life that do bridge so, so much to the Christian life and faith and being the fullness of the body of Christ, championing the fullness of our identities and, and bringing our full selves to the table. Throughout this conversation, I'm hoping that we, and I, I believe we will, show the interplay between architecture and faith So I'd love to set the stage for that by asking, have you always seen that connection between faith and architecture? If so, where did it begin for you? Um, Or how did it reveal itself over time?
2: So architecture is my vocation. It's my job. But architecture is also what I do for fun. So I feel very fortunate. I feel very grateful for that. And uh, because of my passion for architecture, I've always been interested in making it inextricably linked to my faith. And uh, so that my goal has always been there. But over the years, I've kind of certainly gradually grown in my understanding of what that means, of integrating these two significant aspects of my being. So we've been created in the image of a creative God. And my work as an architect is to mirror that image. There's design in all that God has created from a tiny Nautilus to a huge galaxy. I chose those two things because they're both spirals. Knowing this compels me to approach design with awe and humility. A sense of awe and humility is an essential aspect of having a transcendent experience. When we realize how small we are in relation to the universe, and yet our awesome God considers each and every one of us to be infinitely valuable. I mean, that's that's like a cool thing. And to kind of tap into that kind of sense of transcendence, is what makes a building architecture there are buildings but then there's architecture right my most transcendent worship experiences tend to occur in natural spaces and one such place is the amphitheater lake in grand teton national park so you know you get there this you like hike all day you get up to this point i don't know whether you've been there melissa
1: i've seen the grand tetons but not not the lake that you're speaking of
2: so you hike all day you get up to the uh, the top there and then you just look down at this lake and it's just like an amphitheater. It's like this big bowl, okay? It's surrounded by these majestic summits of the Tetons all the way around. So the memory of this special place is etched in my mind. I mean, I just stood there for a while, soaked it all in, recentering my perspective. Just awesome. So I love to be outside and I'm passionate about our role as stewards of the environment that God has entrusted to us. And my deep desire is to inspire people to move beyond a culture of consumerism to that of stewardship as a creative person grown over the years in discovering a strong sense that I'm a kindred spirit with the creator and with God as the original artist, the architect of the universe. So the stewardship theme is actually very important in my mind. So I seek, seek to be a steward of God's creation. I seek to be a steward of the public realm. I seek to be a steward of my client's vision. And I seek to have the heart of a servant. I think we are really called to be other focused and I seek to be a trusted advisor and co-creator of my clients. The best client relationships are when we are co-creators.
1: That's beautiful. I love how really inextricably linked you just described the relationship between architecture and faith. And I do wonder, is there is there someone that that led the way for you in that? Is there I I think about um, students who might be listening to our conversation and wonder how their vocation connects with their faith. And um they're you know pursuing their studies they're they're pursuing completing a major at that stage for you, where did you see God that involved in architecture and your work, or was this something that developed or emerged and and you discovered the nuances as you've gone?
2: Yeah, I think it was a gradual kind of growth in my understanding of of things. I think I was fortunate enough growing up i you know i Came to faith in um, in middle school, and my youth fellowship in my church. I mean, underscored that a fair bit. You know that 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 our faith is not separate from everything else in our lives. I mean, it's it's integral to everything we are. And so, I mean, the things that are passions in our life, I mean, need to be certainly placed on the altar before God because uh, that's too important. I mean, our life. It's best lived when we are kind of transparent and we are consistent through and through.
1: One of the things that draws me to this conversation today, and the reasons that that I'm fascinated with architecture, is the way that inanimate structures directly influence our physical and emo- emotional experience of a place. And though that might not always be conscious. I feel like architecture is is speaking and shaping my emotional experience with a physical framework. So, take us into that world. How does that happen? What's involved in experiences like that whether it's in nature, the Grand Tetons, but the the physical frameworks that you're building? And how should this inform our awareness of how the spiritual is connected to the physical?
2: Absolutely. Transcendence spaces and places speak to me. We just talked about Amphitheater Lake, Grand Tito National Park. I can probably tell you about um, 85 other ones, right, that I've been to. <laughs> when I design, I'm tapping into the memory of the transcendent experiences of my favorite places. And place is very important. One of the great things about architecture is that we only do prototypes. We don't come up like with a prototypical design like a car and then mass produce it. Every piece of architecture has a distinct site with its distinct sense of place, a distinct context, a distinct communities located in, distinct owners and occupants that live in it. So I've learned a lot about the importance of place working with the Ho-Chunk Nation here in Madison. As we know, Madison, the Four Lakes region here, has been the ancestral homeland for the Ho-Chunk folks for thousands of years. What's really cool is that the uh, the Ho Chiang Nation in 2016 voted to establish a Bill of Rights for Nature as a tribal constitutional amendment. It was the first tribal nation in the U.S. to do so. So the nature, the environment, God's creation is people too. So they have rights, just like human beings do. It's a really important kind of way of looking at the world. I mean, if you just sit back and think about the implications of that, it's actually amazing. So the project I've been working with them, it's about connection to the land and restoring it to its natural glory. Uh, and it involves creating a heritage center that is telling the story of the Ho Chang people. And every place and community has a story. And one thing I've learned about the Ho Chiang is their love of storytelling. Uh, just, you just, just imagine, you know, that the, the and they're always sitting in circles and you just tell the stories. Into the night, lots of humor, you know, and great stories, just great storytellers. I've learned the heartbreaking story of what they've gone through, having been relocated several times from this place that is their home, their ancestral home. But they're really resilient people. Every time they've been relocated, they've come back to this Four Lakes region that they call home. And over the years I've worked with them, I've come to admire the Ho people for their resilience and their sense of humor and their connection to the land.
1: Take us a little bit into that process, whether it's that project you're speaking of, how the sense of place, the geographical location, the story of the people, the history, how does that start to turn into the forms and the structures and the shaping of the built environment?
2: So, for example, with the Ho Chiang project, uh, there is, um, they invited me to go to one of their powwows. And by the way, I'll never use the word powwow for like a meeting again. You know, like, oh, let's gather and have a powwow on this. No, 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 I'll never say that again. <laughs> because the powwow is a very sacred event, but it's a lot of fun. And it's in a circle. And like I said earlier, circles are important to them. So like, for example, the the form of the circle worked its way into many aspects of the project. The uh, the Heritage Center is actually uh, around a circular uh, big open space. There's this big op- outdoor gathering space where the um, convention center opens up with these big garage doors and that open space out there is also in the form of a circle. Uh, so you kind of take, sometimes you take these these uh, concepts and then turn them into kind of built reality. Another example of a project I uh, worked on was the Touchstone Theater that I designed for American Players Theater or APT for short. And that project is all about place. Right It was creating a new indoor theater for a theater group that's performed outdoors in the very special outdoor theater up the hill that is that's in the woods for the last like thirty or so years. So what is very much a part of the Apt experience is that journey up the hill and during this walk through the woods, you shed your critical self and you are transported into this magical place and so that goal. For this creating this second performance space, this touchstone theater. The goal was to capture that very special experience of place in the new indoor theater. So after we studied several sites on the APD property, we recommended the site that is actually at the end of this gravel parking lot for the employees to create that. Obviously, we took the gravel parking lot out, but it's a kind of a gently sloping site up the hill, and we restored a prairie that forms the foreground to the theater and mirrors that walk up the hill to the outdoor theater. The architecture of the Touchstone Theater is decidedly modern, but with materials and forms that make reference to the quintessential agrarian landscape of rural Wisconsin. So as stewards of APT's culture and limited budget, we use off-the-shelf materials to turn frugality into an aesthetic virtue. APT is a world-class theater in a really relaxed, accessible form. They make it look effortless. But guess what? It takes a lot of rehearsal to make it look effortless. Similarly, it took extra careful design work to create a place that reflects, that relaxed informal culture to look like it grew over time. Like you go to the hardware store and pick up some stuff and then nail it in place, that kind of thing, right? It actually takes extra work to kind of do that. And, but it's important because it's an important part of that culture. It was our calling as stewards of APT's unique culture uh, and to figure out a way of capturing in what is a uh, state-of-the-art, world-class theatre facility.
1: That's amazing.
2: Another thing that's even closer to home for me is my relationship with my house. So I live in a 105-year-old house. Wow. And Rachel and I lived in it for 27 years. And then I realized when I was looking for a house way back when, that I had to live in one that speaks to me. Um, When we live in a piece of architecture, it's an ongoing two-way conversation. And every day when I wake up, it speaks to me. I learn from it. I'm inspired by its elegance and craftsmanship that went into every detail. They they do exude the joy of how the parts and pieces are assembled together and the joy of understanding the nature of the materials used. And I feel that I'm a steward of the house for future generations. I mean, I'm one in many people who have been in this house, and I want many more people in the future to kind of be a part of this story. So I'll give an example. The wall panelling, in terms of, obviously, it's an old house, right? It uh, takes a lot of work to kind of keep it going. You know, we've, when we first moved in, we had to remove quite a bit of wall panelling and restore the trim and stuff like that. Um, but I found that the best match for the existing trim on the interior, the, the softwood trim, there is, there's oak too. But then there is the, the upstairs is all uh, softwood from a coniferous tree. Uh, and the kitchen is also a, a softwood trim. But the best match is uh, Doug fir. Uh, so when I renovated the, the kitchen, I had to replace some of the trim and baseboard. I could not find the profile of the three-part baseboard like as a stock item. So I had to custom mill the three-part baseboard. Match the existing. Wow! And then the trim in the kitchen is painted because I believe back in the early 20th century, wood varnishes were not water resistant enough. So, from what I can tell, it was always painted. It's the only room in the house where the trim was always painted. It's painted trim, but because I see myself as a steward of the house of future generations, I carefully selected Doug fir boards for the trim in the kitchen with grain that matched the existing trim, because sometime in the future, if a future owner decides to strip the paint and put a clear varnish on a trim, then all the, all the grain will match. You know, it's my sense of stewardship for this house that, that, that drives me to do that. So yeah, it's a labor of love.
1: <laughs> and your vision for generations beyond yourself. It's a stewardship of now, but it's with, it's with legacy in mind. It's with the future in mind.
2: And one of my most fun things, oh yeah, this is one of the most fun things about living in this house—is. Once in a while, someone walks up to my house, usually an older person, and they say, Oh, I grew up in this house. And uh like this, I still remember this uh, most memorable one. This guy, he must have been probably in his 80s or something, old guy, helped by a younger person, probably his son. And uh and so I welcome him in and walked him through the house and all that and talk about a place that speaks to you and a, a place that you know spans the generations. And it's just so satisfying to kind of Hear his recollections of his childhood and what he used to do. Say, "Oh, is there still an incinerator in this house?" <laughs> Things like that. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> they used to like catch. Uh, this guy said they used to like catch bats and throw it into the incinerator. That's what this guy said. I'm like, "Okay."
1: <laughs> wow, what a story. Okay, I love that. I love that you're talking about your home because um, something I wanted to ask about is. There's a longstanding tension or debate in design history between beauty and functionality. And you've brought up function a couple times, but the way with which you're describing functionality is with such beauty. So how do you approach this tension as an architect? Is there even a tension and and even as a Christian, is it like tell me about beauty and functionality? What is the relationship there?
2: Actually in my mind, there is no tension between beauty and functionality. It's totally a both-and proposition. Let's go back to ancient Rome. <laughs> so Vitruvius was a very influential Roman architect in the first century BC. He famously posited that all buildings should have three ad- attributes, firmitas, utilitas, and venustas. Okay? Firmness or strength, utility, and beauty. Okay? So design excellence is much more than skin deep, much more than making a beautiful building we need to take a much more holistic approach to design excellence. Firmness or strength goes way beyond just making the building out of durable materials. Building for the ages involves designing to defy obsolescence, both in terms of functional relevance and a timeless aesthetic. As an architect and a Christian, I draw my ultimate inspiration from the natural world, the, world, the work of our creator God, the architect, the universe. I I never cease to be amazed by the lavish beauty, the immense strength, and the infinitely advanced science of God's creation. I mean, look no further than the design magnificence of trees and leaves. Let's just take something pretty common that we see, right? Just just step back and just think about leaves and trees, okay? There's this infinite variety. I mean, God had fun when he created trees and leaves. All different shapes, sizes, they all totally respond to, you know, the climate they're in. You know, around here in Wisconsin, the trees are more vertical because there's snow, right? In further south or, or in the equatorial areas in Malaysia where I grew up, the trees can actually be more horizontal. And actually talk about vegetation below the water. One of my most fun things I've done is done some scuba diving in uh, Florida Keys. And that is... A context, when you are down below the surface of the water, that is when you have plants and vegetation that's unfettered by gravity. And talk about creativity. Like this scuba diving in that kind of context is like this seriously transcendent worship experience. So anyway, you know, you think about them, right? I mentioned science just a moment ago. So leaves are actually the most advanced solar panels known to us. I mean, they, right? they are able to sequester carbon. They're able to provide oxygen and they're beautiful, right? They do it all really efficiently too. And think about the transcendence of a sunset. I mean, the greatest human edifices just pale in comparison.
1: So architecture plays a huge role in how we interact and connect as human beings. I'm just thinking of different ways that structures, um, gathering places, buildings that we enter in our daily lives dictate how we run into each other, how we spend time together, um, how we even feel. And I'm just wondering, how do spe- those specific forms, shapes, materials contribute to bringing us together or sometimes keeping us apart? And how do you think about crafting interactions between people when you design a building?
2: Yeah. In seventeen forty eight, an architect called Giambattista Noli created a plan of Rome that shows all the interior public spaces of all the major buildings in the city, rendered in the same way as the major outdoor spaces, the piazza and the streets and stuff. So so for example, the the Pantheon, the, the interior of the Pantheon and the interior of say San Agnese in Agone on a, Piazza Navona, the the, the nave of, of these buildings are rendered in the same way as the, the piazza outside of it. This plan of Rome marked a milestone in how we see architectural space. That each building has a responsibility to and a contribution to the public realm. So there's this continuum of space between the building interior and the public realm. So at the scale of the city, streets, and squares are corridors and rooms, while building facades are walls which define the character of these public spaces. So each build, individual building is responsible for the entirety of the urban fabric. And I feel that every great city has its memorable sequence of outdoors, outdoor rooms and places. So of course, you can think of Rome, Paris, Florence and stuff, but let's get closer to home. Madison is actually one of one of these great cities. I really feel that way. And Madison's main and most memorable sequence of outdoor rooms and places is going from the Memorial Union Terrace through Library Mall, down State Street, into the Capitol Square, down Martin Luther King Boulevard, down to Lake Manona. Right? And that that series of spaces, that's what kind of ties the whole city together. You can walk, you can dip your feet into the water and at the Union Terrace, walk along and kind of at Munro Terrace, kind of dip your feet in Nolan Park and stuff like that. So that sequence, that just, I just love that. I mean, just think thinking of it in that way. So the quality of life in a particular community has a lot to do with the quality of its public realm. Let's contrast live theater with home theater. <laughs> There's something so much more appealing about the civic, and communal experience of people coming together to experience a live performance in the theater versus versus the concept of home theater, right? Live theater emphasizes the public realm. Home theater emphasizes the private realm. So the Nolly plans continuum of space between the interior and exterior for me is a great metaphor for Jesus's call for us to live transparent lives, consistent on the inside and the outside. Ray Oldenburg, in his book, The Great Good Place, talks about the three spheres of life. One, the home. Two, the workplace. And three, public spaces, which he dubbed, quote, the third place, unquote. And uh, specifically, this is a quote from him, specifically those that host, quote, regular, voluntary, informal, and happily anticipated gatherings of individuals beyond the realms of home and work. So think of your favorite coffee shop. So great third places intentionally blur the boundaries of all three spheres to draw people together and to help them be their most authentic selves.
1: Wow, yes.
2: The concept of the third place has had a profound impact on the design of architectural space over the past three decades. The concept of the third place has permeated the worlds of the workplace, spaces of learning, retail space, hospitality space—so much so that there continues to this to be this convergence of design character that emphasizes collaboration, coexistence, and community.
1: Wow. Okay. So then, with that as the backdrop, here comes COVID nineteen um, about a year ago, and creates this upheaval of place and. So we're, I mean, we're nearing, as we're recording this, the, the one year anniversary of COVID-19 being declared a global pandemic and which has, you know, created this upheaval for our relationship with public and private spaces and third spaces. Our homes are now workplaces, schools, and our social epicenters, um, at least digitally. And most of us haven't stepped foot into you know, the architectural beauty and wonder of a concert hall or a museum or a community gathering space. And so uh, take us there. What, what is happening with our relationship to space in this season? Um, what are we losing? What are we, what are we gaining maybe? And how do you think, as you're looking into the future, um, how we might rebuild our relationship with these places and re restore or reinvent their meaning to us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A lot, I know.
2: (laughs) As you can imagine, this past year has been both a very stressful year for me as an architect, as well as a very exciting one as we reimagine the design of the built environment. Because, in in a way, you think about it, right? Design and construction of buildings take time. So, I'm working on projects right now where the move in date is two years from now. Necessarily, you kind of need to look to the long term. And also part of our work at Strang also is master planning. We are master planning the uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College system. So rethinking what, what it means, education post-COVID, right? That kind of thing. So that is the backdrop, right? So every challenge is an opportunity to improve the way things are. If you think about it, right? In many ways, the old normal wasn't that great. So while it may seem that our world has been forever changed by this pandemic, What it has actually done, many of the trends that were already in place in the way we approach the design of our built environment. So I want to talk about three big trends and themes that were happening and which have have been kind of accelerated or somewhat modified in some cases. Wellness, resiliency, and sustainability. Let me talk about wellness first. So pre-COVID, wellness was a growing conversation in the design world. And uh, the pandemic has accelerated and heightened focus on this important topic. The pandemic has created a heightened sense of anxiety in the general population in terms of being in crowded public spaces. Emotional wellness is equally important as physical wellness. So to reclaim the public realm, we need to create a culture of transparency by creating public spaces that are calming and reassuring with visual cues of cleanliness standards. So you can't just... Make it clean. you need to kind of demonstrate that it is. People need to kind of feel right about it, right? So not only should we enhance indoor air quality with HVAC systems that improve ventilation filtration, we need to find ways of elegantly communicating these strategies. So a built environment that is well sanitized, cleaned and has a good indoor quality, will improve its occupants' physical health, and the awareness of this will put them emotionally at ease now. Second thing is resiliency. Resiliency is another topic that has come to the fore, and this is a good thing. The concept of loose fit, long life, okay? Quote, loose fit, long life, unquote, is that the more loosely defined the programmatic requirements and the design solutions for a building are, the more flexible it will be for the future. Most buildings are demolished not because they're falling apart, but because their functionality has become obsolete. So designing to last a long time does not simply mean utilizing durable materials, rather designing for flexibility in order to defy obsolescence. So resiliency is the ability for a system or community to withstand a crisis or disaster. So COVID-19 was not really on our minds when we were thinking of disaster before, right? Nor should it be the only thing to consider as we work towards the goal of achieving resiliency. And uh, it's really cool, actually, uh, Mayor Satya, you have a chance to talk to her about it. She's got a lot to say about it. And I think our community is actually going the right direction of that. I mean, the, the, the leadership of our community is onto this. And it's really important coming out of this, that we we think about resiliency uh, for our whole community and how we can do this. So for, for example, uh, the response to a fire in a building should not only be to make the building more fireproof, right? But to focus on investigating the root cause of the fire in order to come up with long-term solutions to the problem. So let us use COVID-19 as a wake-up call for us to thoughtfully and creatively collaborate to create a more just and resilient future for us all. It has to be every member of our community, okay? the haves and the have-nots. And that's where true resiliency for our community is going to happen. So sustainability, while we are advocating a positive, optimistic, creative attitude towards finding solutions to the COVID crisis, right? We need to acknowledge the challenges of coming up with a sustainable solutions that possess the triple bottom line of people, planet, profit, right? All three, sustainable community, environment, economy. Most of our energies in terms of sustainability in recent history have been applied towards a more sustainable environment. You know, we talk about what's good for the environment, carbon footprint, you know, climate change, that kind of stuff. And that's that's important. But in the light of COVID-19, the pandemic, and our push towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and resilience, we need to realize that a sustainable economy and community are equally important. Okay, the negative effects of climate change, COVID-19, and the systemic racism are disproportionately experienced by the most disadvantaged and vulnerable members of our community. So future design solutions should, should encompass each one of these facets of sustainability, right? People, benefit, profit, in order to benefit environment, economy, and community. We talked about the pandemic, how the homes have become epicenters of our lives. They've become our workplace, our schools, our social life. <laughs> and this is very different from the trend of what happened from the industrial revolution onwards, right? At that point, the home became separate from work and school. So that was kind of the pivot point for industrial revolution. But sometimes we need interruptions to cause us to see what we value and whom we value. So those for whom work or the public realm was an escape from the dysfunction of home life have faced the additional challenge of reckoning with the health of our relationships at home, hence resiliency. That's another another thing residency, I mean, just the health of our relationships at home. For those of us who live alone, and I experienced this with some of the folks in my office and as a principal, I mean, one of my goals is to make sure that everyone in my, my company is taken care of. And those employees who live alone and those, the four walls of our home have become an island of isolation from our community. So those are things that we really need to think about. Now, a positive effect of COVID is that the outdoors have become a place of freedom, gathering, and peace. Proof of this is that businesses that serve the outdoor recreation industry are booming. We know that we've got a client who who produces that stuff, and we've got a lot of work (laughs) that we're doing for them. Um, The gift of spending more time outdoors is an invitation to fall in love with the architecture of creation, to cherish it and be stewards of it. And uh, another benefit has been the decreased environmental impact on our planet ecosystems. So while we have gained an appreciation of the great outdoors and natural public realm, what we have lost, at least temporarily, is access to the urban public realm. For example, any large indoor gathering of people, performances, festivals, conventions, worship. And uh, I think there's, there's this pent up desire right now for all of us. I think we all, we human beings have been created to be in community. And I mean, sometimes you, you heard people say, oh, you know, can't wait to get together again. Can't wait to, you know. So post-COVID, we will be more aware of the spaces and places of beauty and community that we value and long to be in. And I think this period has caused us to find creative ways to create and maintain community.
1: Do you think we'll emerge more authentic and integrated in a way as our worlds have collapsed into the smallness of our home or we're grappling with isolation at such a level that, you know, our hunger is erupting for for connection. Um, I'm thinking back to your your earlier comments about uh, how you define the third space and the way it allows us and invites us to be the fullness of ourselves from from all of these separate places do you think the, the post-COVID realm will be like a, a third space in itself where we bring our fullness, where we pursue authenticity? Or do you think that we might tend towards the, we'll become comfortable with the disconnection or somehow there will be a reticence or a, a resistance to that? What are your thoughts?
2: I think the desire deep inside is to want to come together. The only reticence that would that it would be there is a health reticence, that we need to kind of get to the point where, you know, with the vaccine and with with everything, that it's safe enough to do it. And it's a responsible thing to do. But I think we can't get away from the fact that we were created to be in community. That's essentially who human beings are. And we long for that face to face. But that said, Zoom will never go away. That's one of the positive things. I mean it's amazing. Now, I think I, I said I grew up in Malaysia, right? So more than ever before, I've connected with like my my friends from from middle school, from high school, and they're all across the world. So we have to schedule these Zoom calls, right? And uh there's the Australians and all, all the way to the Californians. So so basically like the the Midwestern, I'm the Midwestern person, and the Australians are close to midnight, and I'm like. Early early morning like 7 thirty a.m and we are all talking we're all communicating and somehow that that has really drawn us together in a positive way uh, and and that's been a good thing
1: yeah absolutely absolutely so you mentioned worship uh, and I want to dive into worship spaces the church and and acknowledge that there's a variety of significant architectural spaces in the history of both Judaism and Christianity that include the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the synagogue, private homes, cathedrals and you know the more modern evangelical expressions of church buildings that are in suburban locations as well as rental properties um, where churches are meeting in a school or a theater. So take us to the experience of worship, and what are your thoughts on how the church, as in the people of God, should think about their church buildings? And what is at stake here?
2: Okay, yeah. In history, the temple, the church, the cathedral was one of the most significant buildings in a community. It represented giving one's best to God. And currently, our culture takes, generally speaking, a more utilitarian approach to church buildings. And actually this is not necessarily a bad thing because you study architecture history and the motivations behind the creation of the great cathedrals of yore were not always for the right reasons and therefore not always pleasing to God. (laughs) So I think what we need is an approach that balances social responsibility with spiritual transcendence, you know, and an architecture that has both body and soul. So the, the design of a church facility reflects the theology, mission, and vision of the, the congregation. I'm going to use two examples. Door Creek Church is, is a church that we've done several projects for over the years. And uh, when we did the initial building, the goal was cultural relevance and reaching the unchurched. That was the, that was the main idea, the big idea for that project. So the facility was intentionally designed to be familiar and comfortable for people who had never set foot in a church. So that, that worship space in that first phase, that, that, that building was kind of theater-like, and, uh, and it made it very accessible to people who had never really grown up in the church. You know? So it would be a familiar place to them. So as the church grew, 10 years later, we designed an expansion project that just about doubled the square footage of the facility. And at that point, the priorities of the project were, among other things, community and creating a transcendent worship space. So talk about community for just a moment here. So we created a large lobby space that kind of was the hub of the whole campus. And it was designed with a goal of hospitality, a variety of gathering spaces with varying levels of community and privacy, a coffee shop, a fireplace room. Because this is kind of where church happens uh, as well, and then the idea about transcendence. So a second worship space, a chapel. So the pastor and the, the chair of the building committee put it very succinctly. They said they wanted a space that their daughters would want to get married in. <laughs> and I, when I heard that, and I sat back and I looked at them, and we all agreed that really raises the bar. But that really kind of set the conversation. Esther was a great, it was actually a great uh, metaphor. And that's why we did. So I've done a lot of thinking about what it means to create a transcendent worship space. And we talked earlier about, personally for me, all my most transcendent experiences in terms of worship have been outdoors. And the conclusion I've come up with is that transcendence in worship has to do with connection to God's creation and our daylight and views to the outside. So this chapel we did for Dorkey Church, you know, it's got height, it's got windows at various levels, and light comes in. It's designed for acoustic music. And uh, yeah, it's intimate as well as transcendent. Orchard Ridge United Church of Christ uh, is another congregation we've worked with, and they have a very passionate commitment to community and stewardship of God's creation and they had a very limited budget for the remodeling project. So this was a project that did not expand the footprint of the building. it It was a transformation of the existing space. As their architect, we took seriously our role as stewards of Orchard Ridge Church's budget and the commitment to community and environment, so without adding any square footage to the facility. And as they say, quote, the most sustainable building is one that already exists. We created an enfilade. An enfilade is a French word that means a row of rooms. So think of uh, the Louvre, uh, you know, an art museum. You have a row of rooms that are connected on axis. An enfilade, right? So we create an enfilade of the three main community spaces, the fellowship hall, the crossing, you know, the narthex, and the sanctuary, the worship space. So I created this entourage and really emphasized that axis all all the way through by replacing solid walls with floor-to-ceiling glass, space and light flow right through the entire building. So the sanctuary was transformed by opening up the chancel to the outside. So the chancel was closed. And so the chancel, I put windows on the upper part of the chancel. And the projection surface, you know, for for like song lyrics and all, all that kind of stuff, is subservient to the main show. It's on the side. Okay? The main show is God's creation. What can be more transcendent than having a connection to the outdoors, connecting to God's creation? So, and this this space faces north, so you get diffused light coming in. So it's not direct sun. It it happens to face north, so that that was good. But you can think about it through the seasons. When you're in this worship space, you can you can see the snow, you can see the fall leaves up above, right? And it's a high window because the the choir and the uh, the pastor. And the worship leader is, is low. You don't you don't want it, you don't want to see them in kind of backlit. So it's a high window above them. And then the uninspiring fellowship hall is your typical fellowship hall with uh you know with just concrete block and you know and that kind of thing. It was enlivened by the rhythm of plywood planes, creating a vaulted space. So all I did was cut pieces of from four by eight sheets of plywood and cut them in curves. And uh, I hung them all along the whole space, creating a vaulted space. So these curves, so the whole ceiling, the whole, if you look down this space, it looks like this arched vaulted space with just plywood. So new windows, again, at the end of that, are grazed with relocated stained glass. They used to have these stained glass windows between the sanctuary and the crossing. And it's an indoor space. So stained glass only works when there's a difference, a, a high difference of light levels between one side and the other. So you can actually have the stained glass closed. So I moved those stained glass windows to the to the outside of the uh, fellowship hall. And so they drew in light and color to complete the transformation of the mundane into the transcendent.
1: That's beautiful. So I'm imagining there's there's so many parallels here about how the mission of a space, so whether that's a church and the desire to worship or a space that that your daughter wants to get get married in. You know, I, I can imagine many, many organizations are in buildings that might not adequately express or represent their mission. Um, or perhaps we're even living in homes that um I know I've been one to constantly look around my home and think about what needs to change and and how to aesthetically kind of revive um, different places and, and the things that just inspire my mind visually. But how do we press into the mission of whether that's our home, our families, or an organizational space, and consider how mission can be represented physically? And that might be a remodeling project. But yeah, I just wonder how, you know, and, and at what point does almost the physical space limit the expression of mission because they're not connected properly.
2: Absolutely. The buildings are inextricably linked to the mission of our organization. So Winston Churchill, uh, after the House of Commons was destroyed in an air raid in 1941, said, quote, We shape our buildings, and afterwards, our buildings shape us. Unquote. So Churchill insisted that the rectangular shape of the old chamber be preserved re- in the rebuilding. So there were some folks in the House of Commons who felt that they should. this was an opportunity to kind of turn it into a more collaborative kind of, uh, kind of U-shaped kind of space. But Churchill said he was insisting that the rectangular shape be preserved because it shaped the adversarial nature of the two-party system, which is the essence of British parliamentary democracy. Okay, now, I know that's a kind of interesting statement to say now in our current political station, in the United States, but I think, you know, whether or not we agree with this approach, I mean, that, of course, you know, uh, an adversarial two-party system requires a lot of maturity and, and, you know, coming together and respect, which is what I do believe that it was in the case. But whether or not we agree with that approach, Churchill understood the power of what a building meant. And in this case, he believed that a building was more than just a structure. It was a place of trust and shaped all those who entered it and engaged with it. Okay, architectural space has the power to make us feel sad or happy, distant or engaged, discouraged or inspired. So I want to share a few, a few examples of projects I've done, right? One is ETC, Electronic Theater Controls, out in Milton. ETC is the world's preeminent producer of theater lighting and controls. And so our design for the headquarters reflects the resourcefulness of theater, their connection to theater. So with that, we created a maximum effect with minimum means. Ordinary off-the-shelf materials like expanded metal was used throughout, from guardrails to exterior sunshades, and also as theatrical scrim for the town square facades. So the core of this facility was the town square, which was a truly multifunctional space. It's themed as a movie set, a product demonstration area, a cafeteria, a meeting space, bringing the office people and the production people together. So the office areas are located behind the theatrical scrim and take on the metaphor of a backstage area with exposed studs, scenic paint leaking through the scrim. And depending on how the scrim is lit, one either sees the painted scenery in the town square or the workspaces beyond. The scenery is lit. More brightly in in Town Square, you see you see that. But then, if you kind of make it brighter in the workspaces beyond, you can see the beyond. So, of course, they they are using it as that product demonstration area, so they can light the Town Square in different ways and create that kind of experience. Now, beyond the really obvious theatrical metaphors, it was just as important that we captured and reinforced ETC's egalitarian culture. Okay. So the workspaces are designed to reflect function rather than position of the employees. So for example, the R&D department is designed with individual workstations for their engineers to do their heads down work. And then these are clustered around collaborative space for when they come together. So they actually have two kinds of workspaces. So this is like the very opposite of Dilbertville. (laughs) Private offices are inboard while the open office areas are outboard. Providing a more egalitarian access to daylight. So, so I convinced the CEO to, to tell the whole all the employees. If a manager, you got your private office. Sure, you're inboard, and the whole outside the building is reserved for the, the open office cubicles and the collaborative spaces and that kind of stuff. So no one has a corner office. Not even the CEO. The corners of the building have glass windows and are reserved for conference rooms, and this company is very vertically integrated, So they actually have their own metal shop, which is really noisy. So it's on way on the other end of the building, but it's in a corner of the building. So guess what? It's in the corner of the building. It gets a corner window. So it's got this double-height, two-storied corner window in the metal shop, again, emphasizing the egalitarian nature of the organization. So, I mean, through and through, you walk into the building, you understand this is what ETC is all about. So another example is Summit Credit Union. So we see ourselves as stewards of Summit's vision, translating it into reality with our clients as co-creators. So the design of their branches is the result of rethinking the old notion of the stuffy financial institution, you know, the bank. Instead, creating openness and transparency with forward-looking architecture. So Summit, you can tell from their ads too, right? It's this energetic, progressive organization, and they're really committed to raising the awareness in our community regarding financial wellness, ultimately in order to realize your dreams. These branches have a colorful, light-filled interior. It creates an informal and welcoming atmosphere for the branches. Conference rooms and booths provide comfortable spaces with various degrees of privacy for members to meet with summit financial advisors. I suppose you can pretty much predict, right? These buildings are kind of different. So deploying these branches in some more conservative communities has required a real collaborative process <laughs> with the communities. For example, we just finished the one in the village of Mount Horeb and had a local ordinance that required a more traditional look. Gable roofs, you know, that kind of thing. Brick color and everything. So there was a collaboration, but that was a good thing. It's a good thing because, you know, talking about sense of place, the piece of architecture has to be a part of the community. And of course, it's a win-win. Summit wants that too. They they want the community to welcome them. So the the typical Summit branch is this dynamic sloping eave, single slope roof that goes out like that. So how do you create that and still have a gable roof, right? What we did was if you take a gable roof and superimpose it on a trapezoidal plan, Guess what? The eaves are not horizontal then. So you, we actually managed to achieve <laughs> a gable roof building with this sloping eave that satisfied you know, the Mount Horrock Plan Commission, <laughs> but still has this kind of forward-looking, kind of exciting kind of piece of architecture. Always go for the win-win.
1: That's great. Place, community, purpose, mission, that's it's all intertwined coming to a close here, I have a couple closing questions. And one of them is about kind of the technicality of your, the research and design process and what factors and tensions you wade through, which you've mentioned many of them, but I'm really interested in how, how your architectural process in the field of architecture might help us process um, and inform how we architect our lives. There's so many um, so many metaphors, so many parallels uh, for people of faith and not, but but take us into that that application zone of of your research and design process and and how we can architect our lives.
2: Okay, yeah, our approach is called listen, discover design in that order, very important in that order so before you put pencil to paper or mouse to mouse pad, <laughs> uh, we first and foremost have to listen well, okay? To see see the world through the client's lenses. In some ways, one way I, can, I think of it is that, so what would my client design if they were architects themselves? Okay, so just listen, listen, listen. Our best reward is at the end of the project, at the ribbon cutting, the client looks at me and says, you know, you guys got it. You guys listen well. You get us. You've given us something that just fits us like the f- matches our vision. We can live here. We can we can definitely live in this place really as who we are. And that's our best reward. I mean, it's, a, it's our stewardship of the client's vision. So, and this is true of our long-term clients. For example, with the Door Creek project, I, re- I remember... When we kicked off the second phase of the project, you know there was already a new lead pastor, almost completely new building committee, and there was this acknowledgement around the room that I actually knew more about that facility than anyone else in the room because I had been around longer than they had been too. And this kind of happens with some other long-term clients because we are we we are stewards of that. You know we we hold the in, institutional knowledge, and I think. The best client relationships then are ones where we are considered a trusted advisor. For example, I've worked with the uh, CEO of Summit Creative Union for the last 20 years, and I'm a steward of their mission, their brand, their design vision. So a, a new project often begins with a call from the CEO. So she says, Peter, I've got an idea. <laughs> and she's a busy person. The phone calls don't usually last that long, but it usually ends then with, well, you know what I'm talking about. And then you're off to the races, you know? <laughs> So the, the magic happens when the client is an enthusiastic co-creator, and uh, we've talked a lot about that. Actually, Kim and I have talked a lot about that. How it's it's kind of this this long-standing rela- uh, relationship, long-standing conversation about how to do things better in the built environment, creating you know, and 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 kind of creating branches and facilities that that match their vision and who they are. So the I talked about listening to the client. The client programmatic requirements are internal parameters. And then there's the external parameters like site, topography, context, solar orientation, which is important. We've talked about sense of place. And that's kind of, these are the things that create the sense of place, right? And then there's the regulatory stuff like codes, zoning, stormwater management, transportation. And as we know with climate change, stormwater management is a huge thing now. Ordinances, as we speak, are being rewritten across the country, across the world, because those 100-year floods are happening like once a year, or even more often, every six months or something. All that is part of the listen and discover parts of the project before you even start drawing, before you, know, before you design it. So that's very important. Your, your, your pre-design work is very important. So drawing, talk a bit about drawing. Drawing, for me, is the best way of understanding the world around me. That's what I do. I, I, I sketch, I draw, I love to draw. Enables me to observe on a deeper level just than just by looking with the eye of the camera. I soak in the rhythm, scale, proportion, and materials. When I draw, I analyze what I see and I synthesize it when I design. And it's kind of this interesting, kind of almost mystical thing. When I design, I let my hands move one step ahead of my mind and the design emerges from what I call the consensus of the lines. So drawing in itself is a transcendent experience for me. When I draw, I feel God's pleasure. You asked me a bit about tensions. Well, one, schedule budget quality. You can have two of those at the expense of the third one. And uh, I think about it a little bit, you know, you don't have time to get totally into it. But basically that is, you have to prioritize two. And then the third one of the schedule budget quality is what you need to kind of achieve the other two. So those are things you need to hold in attention, but it's very important. Understand what the client's and what the project's priorities are. Uh, the other thing is projects with multiple stakeholders with different priorities, like church building committees, <laughs> how we architect our lives, being other-focused, having the heart of a servant, being a good listener, seeing the world through the lenses of others, seeking to understand. And interestingly enough, this ties in with what we are talking about earlier, right? About The architect is prima donna and big ego and all that kind of stuff. This is one of the biggest ironies that I've learned in my career. Because when we do that, ultimately, when the client knows that I fully understand them, that I have their best interests in mind, that is when I have their total trust. And that is when I have all the latitude to be creative in my design. So it's one of those great win-wins in life. It's really interesting. The best client relationships are when... My client's a co-creator with me. So I'm not giving up anything, really. I've just gotten to know the client better. Uh, So similarly in life, when people around us know that we fully understand them, that we have the best interest in mind, we have that total trust. That is when we are able to live creatively and abundantly in community. And in essence, this is the radical servanthood that Jesus calls us to.
1: That's beautiful. How would you commission us to see differently as people of faith in light of our conversation
2: today? We are people of the place that we are in. Okay? We need to move away from the concept that land or place is something that we own to something that we belong to, that we are stewards of, that God has created place. God has rooted us in a community and we need to ask the question, How do we seek the welfare of the community that we belong to? How do we value space and place as an opportunity for community, connection, and belonging? So let's be a people who are passionate about stewardship and place making. My deep desire is that we move from an architecture of objects to one of space, from a landscape of separation to one of integration, from an emphasis on the private realm to a celebration of the public realm. Let this be a metaphor for living a life that is not about ourselves, but for others, that in losing our lives, we might find a life that is lived to its fullness.
1: Thank you, Peter, so much. Um, This was a pleasure to talk with you today.
2: You're, You're welcome. I had a lot of fun.